Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. dedicated to Henry Farmer. In the year of the primal form, the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse, man was the lord of the earth. Welcome to episode 163 of Agitators Anonymous. 163, can you quite believe it? Well, here we are. I'm Alan Averill, and what are we going to talk about today? I'm going to look back at... It's 30 years since the primordial demo, Dark Romanticism. Um, The other week, I was given a huge, big... Excuse me while I fetch it. Compendium called Analog Black Terror printed by Nuclear War Now and made by Metastasis, um, the design, a brilliant design company out of Paris. Um, And it sort of sparked an awful lot of memories. It's a compendium of the black metal flyers, um, the imagery, the, well, specifically the flyers, but also demo covers and some um, brilliantly written introductions, which try and sort of capture the magic of the time. So, seeing as the primordial demo is 30 years old, actually, I think it was recorded, well, I'm sitting here now on June the 14th, 2023, and I have a feeling that we recorded the demo somewhere on June the 5th, 6th, or 7th, uh, 1993. So, I'm going to, let's talk a little bit about the old underground, about the magical feeling that surrounded being part of a genuine cultural zeitgeist uh, at the time, which of course was black metal. Now, leafing through this analog Black Terror, I'll post a link to it so you can have a look at it. Um, There are copies left from Metastasis. It's a big, heavy, heavy, heavy compendium of a book, but it sparked so many memories of the time. And it's really, uh, I've probably possibly talked about this on the podcast before. I mean, there's over 160 episodes now, so forgive me if I repeat myself. But this is the first anniversary, the 30th anniversary of the Primordial Demo. Um, So perhaps I've not really discussed this um, before. Maybe I have. Who knows? But the whole 
experience of tape trading. Yeah, it was an absolutely magical time. Now, according to the interwebs, the history of the cassette tape, I didn't realize this, but the Dutch company Philips, okay, that makes sense, Philips, uh, invented the first audio cassette called a compact cassette. This format was introduced to a European audience in 1963 at the Berlin radio show on the following year made its debut in the US market. Now, I had an idea it was old because I've seen cassette tapes from the 1970s. Um, my uncles had uh, cassette tapes. One uncle was in a punk band called the Stay at Homes in the 70s. Another uncle gave me his cassette tapes of UFO and Thin Lizzy in the late 70s. I presumed it was like maybe 1980, but 1963. Wow, well, there you go. And it altered um, the, as it became into mass production, it really altered something within the music industry. Now, you, of course, if you've picked up some old 80s records, uh, you will see this home taping is killing music. And the record companies were, of course, really wary of cassette tapes eating into their own personal, you know, into their own, well, the finances. So they can't have been too happy with the invent invention of the cassette tape. But this was how I think teenagers for um, 25 years, really, well, 20 years, let's say from the late 1970s when the mass production of cassettes. And I suppose when, if we say 1963, when it was invented, I mean, this was invented, a technology that was invented that perhaps yet the home cassette recorder wasn't invented. But, you know, we've all seen those uh, 1970s um, cassette recorders, the kind of cassette recorder you were using in the 80s to load, tediously load those computer games. Maybe you had uh, an old computer game like a Spectrum or um, something like this. An Amstrad, I seem to remember, being knocking around our house and there, as it took two or three minutes to load some crappy game, which was like a ball bouncing around a wall or something like this. Um... But it changed music, really, because what it meant was that bands could record demos and um, reproduce and copy them themselves. They didn't need the intervention of a record label. Of course, this is typified by sort of uh, the early 80s punk rock and new wave British heavy metal movements, for example, pressing your own seven inch, trying to circumvent the tentacles of the record company. And they really did try and sort of crack down on cassette recorders and cassette recording music. But it was very, very different then, because if you take, let's say, I remember, let's pick a demo from the 1980s, um, Morbid Angel, Thy Kingdom Come, 87, Immolation, Demo 88. The trading of that demo led to directly to the record sales when Roadrunner, and in the case of Morbid Angel, Earache, would have signed Morbid Angel and Immolation. Um, those cassettes of the demos were just copied endlessly and spread the word of the band throughout this organic structure, which is if you study nodes and networks is really fascinating. And um, there's probably a, uh, you know, um, if you read the square and the tower, uh, this Niall Ferguson book about um, nodes and networks and the mathematical principles of a node and a network, for sure, the old underground tape trading scene would have represented some incredible kind of um, worldly mathematical um, pyramidical structure worth analyzing because you could make your demo, which we did in 1993, and then you would start to copy individual cassettes. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself and they would go out. Somebody else would copy it. Someone else would copy it. Someone else would copy it. And before long, you were getting letters from Peru. You were getting letters from Tasmania, from Israel, from all around the world because of people who had heard that demo through tape trading. It was an incredibly organic process that actually fundamentally benefited the music industry because what mostly people were copying 
was um, demos, at least in respect of the underground. If you're, the more copied your demo was, the more a record label could theoretically capitalize it when you released your debut album. But it's hard to really explain to people who've grown up in the um, era of the internet, in the era of um, instant online access to everything, how things were back then. Because if you wrote a letter to... Now, the first band I wrote a letter to was Pestilence. I bought the album Malleus Maleficarum, which is actually one of the greatest records of 88. Um, it's the same year as Leprosy. Um, it's before Obituary, before Autopsy, before Altars and Madness, and I don't think Pestilence quite get the respect for that. But that first album, Malleus Maleficarum, I think is produced by Kale Trap or something. I think he did Blind Guardian, but he did an incredible job on this 80s-style razor-sharp thrash metal guitar sound. Anyway, they were the first band. You'd begun to buy records in 88, 89, um, but this was the first record that I noticed had an address, and I didn't really know. What is this address for? And I just wrote away to it. And sure enough, you put in an IRC, an international reply coupon, which cost 72p, I think, which would have been the cost of two stamps. I think a stamp was 36p or something from Ireland to Europe, um, which is quite a lot of money in 1988 when you only probably got about two or three pounds per week or something. Um, And so you would send your letter off. You would send maybe a cassette tape. And I think I got a cassette tape back with um, hour of the Hour of Penance or whatever it was called, Dysentery. I can't remember the name of the uh, Pestilence demo uh, from uh, 87 or 88. Great demo, actually. It's on the re-release of Malismal of Karm that's on Displeased and the original CD, but it was taken off uh, after that. I digress. Proper nerd death metal stuff right there. But they were the first band I ever got a reply from. And it was like, holy fuck, an actual letter sitting there on the counter and... Um, the the idea that uh, you could pick up an album of a band on a record in a record store, take it off the wall, see them in a magazine, see them in Metal Forces, and then re- get a letter back from them seemed so incredibly alien, especially as you're 13 or 14 years old and you don't really understand that probably the people in the band are only four or five years older than you. Um, it seems otherworldly, but then uh, it happens. Very often, what happens is you need a kind of cool uncle or a sort of. Um, you need somebody who's maybe, if you're 12, 13, 14, a little bit older, uh, you know, and in, uh, in this case, it was you're in Dublin, so you're in a big city anyway, but there's a, there's a record shop called The Sound Cellar in Dublin. It's still there. It's been there since the 1970s. And one guy working there just happened to be a bit older, and he happened to be already tape trading from the mid 80s. And he did was into punk rock, but also death metal. And I expressed my interest in, you know, something that was on the wall of the record store. And he was like, oh, I have the demo of that. And then it was like, well, what's a demo? And then that one question, what is a demo? And you were just all of a sudden dropped and immersed into this entirely different culture. He just said to me, oh, bring in a few uh, blank cassette tapes. I'll record you some demos. And then somewhere in the end of 1988, maybe September, October 1988, I got a packet from him. He just gave me a, uh, you know, like the brown uh, packet of, um, of initiation with four or five C90s in it. And in there was autopsy uh, demos, Malta Death, Thy Kingdom Come, Morbid Angel, Macabre demos, um, Syndrome, um, Tormentor, Mephisto, all this kind of stuff. And it literally just blew my mind because I was just getting into fucking 1988. So you're getting into death metal. Um, you know, you've got Bathory Pestilence, that kind of stuff, death. And all of a sudden you're just in this realm 
of tape trading and then you start school that year and people are like oh you know everybody i have a memory of early uh, primary school um this is going to be a kind of a nostalgic episode be warned um and everybody you know, there was punks and straight edge people and people into rockabilly and psychabilly the like of which you just don't see anymore because um the identification with subcultures i just don't think um, really exists with young people the same way anymore but what you did have was all of a sudden you had your you had the beginnings of a tape trading list so you made a list of all of the things that you had. You know, maybe you had nuclear assault survive. You had this, that, and the other. But somewhere in your list was like syndrome, uh, into the halls of extermination, demo eighty-eight, and people and somebody who's into thrash metal. You know, you give it, you give your list, and they would give you a C ninety, and you would trade um, cassettes in the school, cassettes on Saturday afternoon around the local metal shop, and somebody would go, "Wow, Morbid Angel demo eighty-seven. What the hell is that?" Then all of the madness comes out. And you're standing in the record shop going, aha, well, that is that songs from the demo and etc. And it just it just literally snowballs from there. And all of a sudden, end of 89, 90, I started my first fanzine. Um, I was writing to Dorsal Atlantica, uh, more malevolent creation, incantation, maybe not incantation actually yet, uh, mythic, I think. Um, all these kind of bands and you're getting replies. And all of a sudden we made our first fanzine and maybe it was 1990 even and then that spurred on me to do another four or five um issues of my own fanzine which i must actually make into a compendium at some stage but it really was it really is hard to describe to people how incredible it was to be part of something that was a completely analog process that was reliant on literally just sending letters to another place you had to wait with anticipation for a month perhaps to get a reply from Sackers from Rodding Christ and within that he might have sent you a vinyl copy of um, Mortar Drape into the drape because De Decapitated Records was from down the road or um, you were constantly things were just landing in the post and it was an absolutely incredibly sort of magical feeling and then, of course, you want to take things to the next level and you want to join a band, start your own band. And a lot of the people who are still involved in the Irish scene now are from that era, 1991, 92. Um, we all just kind of wanted to be in a band. And it was the tape trading thing that began us to, to try. And you you think to yourself, wow, we, we, we want to add our own. We want to add our own little um, drop in the ocean, drop in the underground ocean. And it was at that time, somewhere around 1991, that you began to be aware of something else happening in the underground. Um, it was in maybe the end of 89 where I think Rotten Christ, Satanus, Tedium, Masters, Hammer, The Mass. These were the first demos that I remember getting, thinking there's something different here, a different atmosphere. And then 1991, Beherit, Impal, Nazarene, um, Varathron. And you began to realize that there was a separation of church and state going on, so to speak, uh, where death metal was moving away into this sort of MTV um, stratif you know, kind of stratification and that was leaving people behind and there were people who sort of resented where it was going and wanted to go somewhere else with it and really realistically wanted to bring things back to the ugliness of 1981 but also back to the sort of occult heart or whatever you want to call it um, this this could we call it this sort of mythological realm that wanted to bring basically the evil back to death metal and that was of course black metal and I answered an ad in, um, I think, August 1991. It said Singer wanted for Fingal-based metal band. And I didn't really know where Fingal was. This is Primordial, of course. Um, and they, which is on the north, uh, far north side of Dublin, maybe 15, 20 kilometers um, from the city. And we rehearsed, I think, a week later. And 
that became, you know, what you know as primordial. And from the very beginning, were you sort of trying to find your feet in terms of songwriting? What, you know, who are you influenced by? What kind of way are you going to write songs? But it's very hard to describe to people this incredibly liberating feeling of being part of the underground back then, of writing songs, especially kind of morphing into that early black metal scene because it felt absolutely liberating. I once did a lecture in a in, in a college, a religious college about black metal, and I just sort of said, you can't intellectualize a punch in the face, but you also can't rationalize now because of the um, highly interconnected, digitized way we live our lives through instant communication. And also the fact that right now, um, the most private conversation you could have is standing in the middle of a field somewhere uh, without your phones. The idea that you were living in an analog way where you were writing letters, you weren't obsessed with your phone, you weren't obsessed with every um, moment of mass communication, just basically invading your synapses all of the time. And that you could literally live out these early teenage years um, with this liberating freedom. And I really truly believe they were. And then once you you kind of hooked that on to the... Uh, train or hitched your wagon or whatever to black metal and it was this incredibly liberating force because associated that was all of those early occult books that you've started to read and started to get interested in um, and all of the religious aspects that came along with it but there was nobody and this is something that's very important um, and something that you know modern um, music and the model modern underground is beset with is that back then nobody was watching taking notes you were allowed to be young and dumb and full of well you know what i mean anger and aggression and say extreme things and that's something that i think is very hard to explain to somebody now i remember sitting with um a few uh, punk friends a couple of years ago and trying to explain to them that the embrace of extremity of symbol symbolic extremity even if it was not meant because let's be honest you cannot hang a middle-aged man for the things they said and um, did when they were 18 or 19. There's a reason why you're 18 or 19 and you probably shouldn't really be listened to. But of course, that's, uh, you know, that's a problem right now in the in the kind of infantilistic way we uh, view modern society. But, you know, there was a sort of naive embrace of extreme symbolism, but it was a sort of beautiful thing, almost like gonzo journalism or something like this. It was the embrace of extremity purely for the sake of of extremity. Of course, for some people, there was general, genuine occult meaning or there was genuine an embrace of, you could call things, the more arcane spirituality that, that you know, swept you along on the tide of black metal, which helped form people, whether it was um, understanding what they considered to be Luciferianism or Satanism or maybe hitching their, um, hitching their ride to something more um, cultural. Maybe like in Ireland, we had specifically, along with, you know, Primordial, there were people around in the black metal scene and we sort of moved things in a more, I suppose you would consider them to be um, nationalistic, cultural, uh, mythological, things connected to our, to where we were from, I suppose. They weren't fantastical, so to say, Although, nor were they steeped in um, biblical mythology. But it was an incredibly liberating time. And now when I look back on it, it seems... And um, when you try and explain it to people uh, who are, you know, 10, 15, 20 years younger, perhaps some of you are listening to this, the idea that you were able to kind of, and this whole movement existed just under the surface, a massive, a massive network of people writing letters and um, 
waiting for the next demo by X band or that band or which fanzine to arrive. And these moments could be life-changing, life-altering, set you on a different path. And one fanzine could arrive and say, okay, well, I remember uh, sitting down with Kieran from Primordial and talking about these pagan movements, these groups called Baldur, um, B-A-E-L-D-E-R, Baldur, Baldur, um, Luciferian light group, and just being fascinated by just immersed in all of this new kind of occult literature that we were absorbing at the ages of 17, 18 and 19, because you're like a sponge just trying to take all this stuff in and form your opinions about the world. And all of this just steeped into the nature of what black metal was. And it was a genuine, um, it's like being part of a sort of, as I said, analog cultural zeitgeist of a, mu- of a movement that was really producing incredible music. And while I was in my friend's flat listening to, um, you know, you can hear me probably turning the pages of this massive book, uh, the Black, the Analog Black Terror, with some, with some really well-written, thought-provoking introductions um, that really brought up this well of nostalgia in me uh, when looking through the book. But at our dangerous meeting where I received this beautiful product, um, my friend just played old cassettes, and I thought, fucking hell, this is a long time since I heard Strid demo on cassette. Fucking hell. And it just made me think, where the fuck are all my cassettes? Um, Which sounds like a terrible thing to say, but over the years of moving the vinyls, the shirts, sadly the CDs, which I think now are worth even, are worth, completely worthless, but they were the things that moved, the cassettes didn't, and somewhere or other, boxes of them got lost, and I think what a terrible shame that is. But it was by the end of 91 where Primordial had started to take a particular path, and that was we were going to make this um, form of black metal that I suppose you could call it pagan black metal because it was informed by our own culture and history and heritage, not just being Irish. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
put a sort of pan-Europeanism to it, um, but not limited to that. Definitely not. But don't forget, we were also 17, 18, 19 years old. So you're kind of finding your way in the darkness about which path you want to take. And it was, an, like I said, an incredibly liberating time where Band A didn't sound like Band B. Mystifier didn't sound like Immortal. Bestial Warless didn't sound like, you know, Mortary Drape or whatever. Um, and bands were very, very specifically individual. That I think is something that is lost in the modern metal scene, or especially in the modern black metal scene sometimes. In that, you can find a band and you can go, okay, insert Death Spell, Omega, uh, Dissonant Guitar Riff. Uh, things were much more, I feel, individual back then. And I don't know if that's just the impetuosity or of youth or the, just the nostalgia of looking back to something you were integrally uh, a part of, which informs your opinion of that. Possibly both things are true at the same time. But we wanted to write songs. We wanted to be part of this liberating movement, this sort of free movement. And it also was very interesting to inform your thoughts and your, your relationship to authority. It, it, the black metal is what sent you out to be, I suppose, some sort of mental or intellectual rebel or outlaw or seek some sort of alternative way of looking at the um, structures of what you perceive to be authority or um, government or that kind of stuff. In a way, I suppose, something similar, although coming from the opposite side of the coin to what punk might have done for quite a, a few people that I met at the time. And certainly when I look at the conformist nature of the modern metal scene, it seems uh, things like rebellion or being a sort of an outlaw or having sort of individual um, thought based on these things is very much at a modern premium where people will scream and shout at you for having said something that they view to be, um, what would they say now? Troublesome, dangerous, difficult, and that your words are impinging on somebody else's safety. I mean, of course utter nonsense but the point is that trying to recreate that sort of early 90s black metal scene I mean it's very hard to define the sense of uh, liberating energy that surrounded it so we had started to write songs if any of you have the box of where greater men have fallen this wooden box there is a seven inch in it which was I think the seven inch that I'd always wanted to make in 1991 of our very first um, the first two songs we wrote rehearsal songs sort of simplistic crude black death metal death black metal whatever you want to call it um, sort of very primitive vocals, primitive style. It reminds me maybe of something from South America from the 80s a bit, uh, just not quite as good. Um, but there is a 7-inch in there, which I think would have been the one we had wanted to make in 91. But it wasn't until June 1993, which you can see is a, almost an 18-year, or it's an 18-year, <laughs> what, 18 years in the blink of an eye, an 18-month gestation period of those songs, which are the four songs which came out on the Dark Romanticism demo. Um, which is an awful lot longer to write those than we did to take the songs to write for the new album, for example. And the idea that you would take your time, like Emulation would have started in 86, 87, um, and not release the first album until 1991, or Mormon Angel in 84, 85, and not release the first album in 89, you're perfectly honing those things in those first couple of years. I don't think a band would wait so long before releasing an album now. But once we had our four songs ready, um, to the Ends of the Earth, I think, is probably the most black metal of them, maybe among the Lazari. Um, and I have to say that I'm not embarrassed by those lyrics. Some people look back on the things they sang 30 years ago uh, with a bit of a sense of trepidation or embarrassment, but I'm not uh, actually at all. Like I said, they were all inspired by this sort of liberating energy surrounding um, 
the idea that you're about to contribute your own, the, the thing that you've just created into the scene that you've been so a part of or so obsessed by. So it was recorded in about four or five, maybe six hours, just all live on eight tracks, analog old eight track, I think a half inch recorder. We had no unreal understanding of anything else like that. We'd never even been in a studio uh, before. We did the slow song, The Darkest Flame, where it has this kind of singing, which uh, I originally intended to be like um, Celtic Frost mesmerized from the end of the Pandemonium album, maybe also from the first Christian Death record. Uh, that kind of thing, maybe some Nemesis Candlemas, Nemesis 82, Black Messiah sort of vibe, but of course couldn't sing yet. But we were trying to add our own elements and it didn't feel weird that we were adding them or that the opening riff is a kind of trouble riff or a Candlemas riff. But once it was recorded, it took six or seven or eight hours on eight tracks. Um, it was literally mixed that evening and we went home with a cassette and it was 50 pounds old Irish pounds and I remember that even then for the four of us trying to scrape up 10 to 15 pounds each if you want a romantic story that sounds so typically Irish here it comes is that um, the other lads used to pick bags of potatoes um, down in Scaries and it was one pound a bag and that was a huge bag you had to fill the entire bag with potatoes and that was worth one pound and the lads would go out uh, picking huge bags of potatoes to try and save up money for recording their demo. Now, have you heard, have you ever heard a more Irish story than that? Probably not. But there you go. Then was the days. Then was the days before you had garage band on your, um, your whatchamacallit. And could buy some drum tracks online and, well, I don't know, talk to ChatGPT about how to make the best black metal demo. Of course, I'm being ridiculous. But what we used to do is we used to go and buy, then you would go save up money, then you had to go and buy 100 cassettes. Um, there used to be a, t a place in town that used to duplicate cassettes. And you would spend ages monopolizing the stereo at home, going, you know, um, record, play, pause, record, play, pause, off. And each one had to be recorded in real time, unless you had that double speed button. But then sometimes they would come out wrong at the wrong speed. And then you just started to send them out to fanzines, try and get reviews, you print, you cut up and made hundreds and hundreds of flyers and sent them out. And that feeling of like, oh, I suppose, sending the thing that you've given birth to out there into the world was quite incredible. And then starting to get reviews back, starting to get letters back from people. Um, it really was uh, probably the most important step you can imagine as a band back then. And it just set us off on a particular path. And then after that, you know, you'd made your demo, you bought your famous Tascam or Fostex four track recorder, which is like a little cassette recorder with the, um, you could mix things yourself and record drums. And many, many amazing demos were made with these four track Fostex and Tascam recorders. Um, if you've never, if you've no idea what I'm talking about, maybe Google them, but they were brilliant things. And then you could bounce the tracks down uh, and, and mix them. Um, I'm sure there are lost primordial demos from like 1992 where we used to sit around meticulously recording and recording drums and we maybe only had one crappy microphone and you had to take everything in turns then you would bounce guitars down um, and there were so many demos made at the time like that you just sort of really had to take things into your own hands because people didn't have the money to go into proper studios like I said the romantic story of primordial picking bags of potatoes to be able to um, save up the 50 pounds to record that first demo but where there was a will there was a way because nothing was handed to you, um, even uh, instruments at the time. We had, uh, we used to have to rehearse uh, in our ba in the bass player's house 
uh, when the parents were out, you know, hiding across the park on the other side in the bushes, waiting until they'd gone out and then sneak across. And we didn't have proper instruments. We had barely one amp between us. I used to have to sing through a stereo. If any of you have ever heard this weird Irish compilation at the time called a compilation of nursery rhymes in A minor. Yeah, I know. Ridiculous as it is. Um, it's a cassette from 1992 and that contains the first ever primordial uh, recording. Well, instead, we were called Forsaken and then there was a band from Malta, I think, called Forsaken. Uh, thankfully, we changed the name. I don't, would have, uh, don't think we would have. Somehow, nominative determinism, is that the right word? Would have, have got quite so far on being called Forsaken, not a great name. But regardless, we put that, we recorded that with one, one microphone we'd borrowed from somebody down the street in a boot, waited for the parents to go out. It all sounds a bit romantic. And then recorded the song um, and just had to position the microphone in the boot in the right place in the room to be able to hear everything. Um, that song, I think, is on a bonus CD of uh, one of the albums. I must find it and post it online for people to hear if they haven't heard it. But it's The Darkest Flame. It's made the demo the next year as well. And these were the kind of things you had to do. And they sound so, I suppose, romantic and naive now because everything is so digitized and people know so much more. But in a way have lost, I think, some of that magical sort of feeling that you just sort of adapted to whatever um, things um, came, you know, whatever the circumstances were. I mean, for us, it was OK. No one has any money with shitty guitars, shitty amps we don't really have anywhere to rehearse we don't have the money to go into rehearse anywhere um we don't even have one of those fostrex four track recorders but we're gonna record a fucking song and get something out there in 1992 um and that's pretty much exactly what we did and what we were doing is being replicated everywhere whether it was uh, i'm sure in somewhere in uh, quito in ecuador or uh, i don't know colombia or and somewhere in Gdansk in Poland, there was a band doing the exact same thing. Somewhere, Pandemonium were recording Devilry, which is a fucking brilliant demo, by the way. And one of my first as well. Um, um, or, you know, one day in the post, you just happened to get Vader, Morbid Reich, and it just blew your entire fucking mind. I mean, there is something to be considered about that early black metal scene. In a sense, it embraced a form of conservatism, I suppose, culturally, as it went against elements of the sort of post-structural, post-idealistic, post-modern, um, nothing-means-anything social structure of the time, because it certainly embraced some elements of the past, even the sort of medieval mythology that sort of surrounded an awful lot of black metal. Maybe it's a stretch to say those things, but when something is a genuine cultural zeitgeist of a movement, I think you can um, you can begin to look at it in other ways and other angles that you wouldn't have considered at the time. Yet, at the same time, while having something inherently conservative within it, which includes the music, as in... Um, when someone would say, well, so how does black metal sound? And you would say, well, I would have always said, well, it has to be metal. But then the black part of it is the sort of arcane spirituality. It's the identification with that sort of rebel spirit or whatever you want to call it. How that sounds is really open to question. Contrary to popular belief, it didn't have to sound like Under a Funeral Moon. Because let's be clear, two years previous to Under a Funeral Moon, Dark Throne didn't even sound like Under a Funeral Moon. But that element of well, let's call it cultural conservatism on some level, musical conservatism. Um, as in, I suppose you were, you know, not that the music itself was conservative, because I think it was kind of in, imbued with a wild kind of spirit, but that there was an element of conservatism to the whole thing. 
but yet it was coupled to this absolutely um, raging, incessant desire to embrace this kind of form of um, liberty, this form of energy, this creative energy. And when I look through this book, this Analog Black Terror book, every page is just a new memory of, oh my God, yeah, remember the, the, the Throne of Ahaz demo or... At one stage, somewhere in 1993, when the promotional demo had come out, um, I think I'd made the third issue of my fanzine. I was getting sometimes 30 to 40 letters a day um, on a good day. Uh, bad day would be five or six or seven or eight. And you would just get, you know, uh, a package from somewhere or other and it would have uh, an advanced cassette of the first Burzum record. And I just remember putting that on and just thinking, wow, this is fucking, this is insane. Everything has changed. The whole game has changed when I heard Black Spell of Destruction. And... It did. But the thing was that it was only a matter of time before um, major labels and I suppose the mainstream structure of the music industry came sniffing around what was black metal, uh, sensing that there was some sort of cultural zeitgeist of music um, uh, going on and there was money to be made, just like it did to death metal around about 91, 92. All of a sudden, bands were starting to be signed to major labels. I think the very first was Samael signing for Blood Ritual to Century Media, which at the time I think shocked an awful lot of people within the black metal scene. But slowly then you got, you know, Emperor, you got, then you get the Cradle of Filthy Maburger kind of era. And by 96, that whole magic of that first, let's call it that second wave of black metal, it felt like it had gone. And there was a couple of years in the wilderness before you get to 98, 99, when I suppose the next wave, the Watanes of this world and that kind of thing started to come along. Um, and alter things again. Of course, there were bands who existed throughout that entire time, um, but that sort of magical moment somewhere between 87, 88 and 93, 94, um, which was the tape trading fanzine world, could never really be replicated the same way. And it can't be now. It's sort of lost forever like a time capsule. But that's the nature of many things. I'm sure if you talked to people who were into punk rock in 1978 or New Age Revival from 1981, they would say, or the early electro scene, um, you know, or the early post-punk scene, or getting a tape of Killing Joke in the post from 79 or 80, or whatever it was, whatever it was, buying that first Discharge 7-inch, or that getting a copy of Crass, uh, for example, in the, in the post in the early 80s. It was the nature of that analog network, that structure of people trading music with each other because they loved it, because they were passionate about it, because it was, they were obsessive, because you needed to hear this thing. And that's something that is completely lost when you can, or you could even 10, 15 years ago, download an entire band's discography when you actually own files. And then you would be, um, you could listen to the first 30 seconds, then go, meh, and then just drag it and drop it. Now people don't even own those files. And that's part of something that I've alluded to before in the podcast, this you will own nothing and you will be happy. The Spotify model of the world, what do we hand down to other people or show to other people? I mean, I take great delight still in sitting around and going, oh, have you heard the Incubus 7-inch from, from 1987? And somebody goes, no, never. But actually showing it to them. to Still that nerd in me, you know, that sort of obsessive nerd rises up to the surface and wants to take control and go, oh, you've, you don't know Nocturnus, the science of horror? Fucking hell, but blah, 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 whatever. And on and on we go. You never heard Right to the Black Mass by Acheron? Wait till I pull out the vinyl and show you. And it's that thing of that analog tactile nature, which is 
what modern society has been trying to remove from us. Of course, it's been trying to silo us off into our remote working future where we don't really see other people and are, you know, controlled by this um, system of QR codes to gain entry to your own life, etc., etc., which may or may not happen. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But the idea that uh, what embodied this old movement was that everything was analog, everything was tactile, everything was about um, the, the row of cassettes that you had on your rickety old shelf with the hand-drawn logos on the side. Everything was you being immersed with a physical object. Um, I've posted on my Instagram um, pictures of I used to spend hours drawing the little logos on the spines of cassettes. And it was, you know, the, you would come in and look at 50 of them piled up to the ceiling. And once upon a time, someone saw some pictures of them and said to me, um, can I buy all those cassettes off you? We have a metal bar and we'd like to put them in a display cabinet. And I thought, oh, that sounds shitty. And now I regret not giving them my cassettes because now they just sit in a box somewhere. Um, and how cool they would have been to be in a metal bar just on the wall and people go fucking hell look at the you know this weird conflagration of oh master's camera demo is there besides sabbat demo and all the logos and stuff of course the metal bar probably would be shut by now and they would be in another box somewhere in somebody's dusty shelf but you know them's the breaks my friends this is episode 163 it's been a romantic nostalgic trip down black metal well you know what i'm gonna say um but I do recommend, I'm looking at this book right now as we speak at, I just opened a page and it's Necromantia is Morbid on bass, Baron Blood on eight string bass and Slow Death on backing vocals. Yes. Um, that's it. The book is closed. Um, Metastasis from Paris. I'll put some links up. Analog, Black Terror. Just some memories of that early tape trading scene trying to be involved in the early black metal scene and the sort of liberating energy that surrounded it that formed and shaped you for the rest of your life if you were lucky enough my friends episode 163 Yajaday's Anonymous